0: Let's uh, let's get going. Good evening and welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Jill Rutter. I'm a Programme Director here and I'm taking a welcome break from doing stuff on Brexit Um, and going into the uh, much less complicated area of post-truthiness. So we're absolutely delighted to have with us tonight Evan Davis, uh, known to many of you as presenter of Newsnight, BBC Economics editor formerly, uh, presenter of Dragon's Den. Uh, but actually, a sort of slightly more credible person in his own right uh, started his career at the Institute for Fiscal <laughs> Studies, and I got to know Evan when he was doing the modelling for us at the Department of the Environment on the poll tax. But they take no responsibility for that. Um, Evan is going to talk to you for about—he's going to start off for about fifteen minutes about a book that seems to be very timely and has just come out called Post Truth. But actually. Has been in the writing for really quite a long time. We're certainly in the writing for an awful long time before post truth became the Oxford English Dictionary word of the year. Uh, so, Evan's going to talk about their sort of, you know, his theory, his theory of bullshit, general theory of bullshit. He's an economist, so he believes in general theories of things. And then we're going to look at some practicalities uh, from Will Moy, director of Full Fact. For those of you who don't know Full Fact, they're the UK's independent fact checking charity. Uh, They also live in uh, upstairs nowadays. Uh, Will is going to give you a little bit of insight into what Full Fact's been doing to try and turn back a bit of the tide of post-truthiness, bullshit or whatever you want to call it, and then we're going to have all your comments and things like that. Those of you who are eagle-eyed will uh, spot that there is a panellist missing. We had hoped to be joined by Claire Wardle from First Draft News, who's been working very much with uh, will and the full fact team on the election, but unfortunately Claire hasn't been able to make it tonight. So there's just going to be the two of them. Uh, please don't walk out because it's an all male panel. Uh, I will intervene enough to make you happy. Uh, anyway, so. Uh, we're going to have loads of time for questions and answers. And then, of course, afterwards, those of you that haven't already bought the book, and I have to say the advanced sales have been going peculiarly well, she says, in a bit of advertising hype. Uh, you'll hear more about that from Evan. Uh, you can go and buy copies of the book and Evan will hang around and sign them for you. Uh, he might also honestly tell you that they cost lots less on Amazon, but then you don't get the signature. <laughs> anyway, without further ado, I'm going to pass over to Evan Davis.
1: Evan. Jill, thank you so much and uh, thanks for hosting me here and, and letting the publisher put a book stall outside. Um, so yeah, this book, Jill Jill was right, it actually started some time ago, and it was going to be called Peak Bullshit. Um, that was in 2013. And then 2016 came along, and the publisher said, you really need to finish this book, there is never going to be a better time uh, to finish a book on bullshit. And then the publisher said, we're going to call it Post-Truth, it's Oxford's uh, Word of the Year. So... Um, I have a very broad notion of bullshit and it really covers everything from gibberish in a wine review talking about a juicy structured wine and that kind of thing uh, to inauthenticity to pricing things at £9.99 rather than £10. Pounds. The ebook was priced at £9.99 rather than £10. Pounds. Um, so I have a very broad notion of it but of course I do include in that um, people telling lies or people telling near lies. I didn't have sexual relations with that woman. Uh, people being economical with the truth or selective with facts or people just playing fast and loose with facts. So I have a very broad notion of it. So my, my kind of bullshit notion is a bit broader than the kind of thing that full fact uh, have to sort of counter. But nevertheless, I think there's quite a lot that we'll, we'll have to say, if you like, in common uh, or about each other. Um, When I started it, what I wanted to do was write a book that basically explained why there was so much bullshit. And the reason I wanted to do that was because I'm someone with an economics background, and economists write a lot about information. They write a lot about information asymmetries and communication. And it was an area of economics, like so many others where the models the economists were using were essentially rational models. Uh, And so the economists basically had this view of the world. If I told you to buy my product, you wouldn't believe me because I would tell you my product is good, regardless of whether it was good. I'm I'm, I'm trying to sell you my product. You wouldn't believe me because you're rational. Uh, Because you wouldn't believe me, I wouldn't waste my breath trying to tell you to buy my product. And so the economists have sort of taught themselves into a rational model of communication, which is essentially, there is no bullshit. And then we observe the world and we find there is quite a lot of bullshit. So the point of my book was to, Jill's right, it was to provide a general theory of bullshit. Why is there so much of this stuff when the kind of, the basic rationality would tell you we're all far too stupid to believe things that other people say. So that was where it started. And the core of the book basically is four chapters that try and give you four reasons as to why, why it is such an a, a sort of endemic uh, endemic phenomenon. Then the second thing the book did, obviously this was sort of retrofitted a bit in the last year. The second thing the book tries to do is to map all of that to, to where we are in sort of 2016, 2017. And basically to sort of say what does the the general theory of bullshit, tell you about populism and in particular about Donald Trump uh, because he was obviously, is a very interesting phenomenon when it comes to communication and honesty and authenticity. So what I'll, just, what I'll do, and I'll, I'll, I'll take no more than ten minutes to do this, I will just summarise, just give you a sort of taste of what's in the book so you don't have to buy it or so you like it so much that you think you want more and have to buy it. Uh, preferably. Uh, I'll just summarise th- those two kind of themes. What the, why there's so much of this stuff, and then what that tells us about populism and the current state of political discourse in, in, in Britain and, and, and the US. And Four reasons why there is so much of it. Number one, quite a lot of it is bullshit that is at some level quite informative so when I go to dinner with you and you give me something burnt and I say oh it's delicious, oh don't worry about the the bit at the edge there, no that's fine I'm not telling you about what I think of your food I'm talking bullshit when it comes to your food but I am telling you something quite useful, I'm telling you I'm quite well brought up Um, I know how to behave at a dinner party uh, I like you, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I'm telling you a lot about myself, even though I'm not, the literal words I'm using are not exactly true. Okay, so that's, that's one reason why bullshit is so pervasive. It's that you have to ignore the words and read the subtitles, like in Annie Hall. Do you remember the scenes in Annie Hall, ways, talking about photography as an undeveloped art form, and the subtitle is, I wonder what she looks like naked? And so there's a lot of that in communication. So that's number one. Number two, um, short-termism. Quite a lot of what we see is people trying to get away with something. They know they're not going to get away with it for long, but they don't need to get away with it for long. They only need to get away with it for this period. And quite a lot of, in public discourse... In business and in politics, quite a lot of what I would call the bullshit we're fed is about essentially trying to hook you up until the the, the relevant deadline and we don't worry about the long term. So quite a lot of the time I think when you criticise politicians in particular for being bullshitty, you're really actually criticising them for being short term. So the classic example, the archetypical example would be we've no intention of cutting taxes You only need that promise to last for the three weeks until the election. What happens thereafter doesn't matter. But because your time horizon is just those three weeks, you'll say it, uh, whatever happens thereafter. So you know you'll be caught out in the long term. But the long term doesn't matter. All that matters is you win the election. So short-termism, bullshit, very linked. Third area where I think the reason we have a lot of bullshit is that human beings are not rational. Just as the efficient markets model in economics is perhaps flawed because we observe animal-like behaviour in traders and in human beings, human beings are not rational. So you can get snake oil salesmen who will sell us snake oil, who will successfully sell us snake oil, uh, because they will find a way into our mind. They basically can exploit our psychological foibles. We do respond to 9.99 pricing. We do sell more by pricing 9.99 than 10, and as long as people, as long as you, you know, and there are psychi- psychologists who try to understand why 9.99 sells more than 10. But as long as it does, then you can expect people to, to to price things at 9.99. So there's a sort of psychological collection of things that matter there. I will just point out, by the way, it doesn't work if you're selling a house, and. Uh. The reason why it doesn't work is when you're selling a house it's is actually quite important when you buy a house and you don't you're not really fooled. when you're buying a book or buying a piece of clothing it, 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 it might, it might it might have an effect. Um, and then the fourth reason I think we have so much of this rubbish is this it's that once you have a little culture of it it becomes an endemic and infectious thing that just spreads and it becomes Almost irresistible. So if everyone else is bullshitting, it's really hard not to. And in fact, if you're the only person in town who doesn't, you're really liable to be misunderstood. So builders always say it'll take three months, always take six months. If you're the builder who says it's gonna take six months, everyone will assume it's gonna take a year because they're just doubling everything they hear. So or if you're if you're the politician who says, I'm going to ask sensible questions at PMQs, I want a grown-up P- P- prime minister's questions. Well, if the culture is you know, one of where you don't ask sensible questions, you try and score a point, you'll just be misunderstood. You'll just look weak rather than clever. And so all the attempts at overthrowing the culture of PMQs fail because we've got an entrenched culture there and it's really hard to break an entrenched culture. So those are the sort of four key theories. One about short-termism, one about our psychological foibles, one about um, the kind of endemic culture, and the other about people communicate truth in their choice of bullshit. The, 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 you know, I, I lo- I, your bum doesn't look big in that. It's, 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 don't take it literally, it's just being nice. Yeah. So those are the kind of four... four th- 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 that, that's the core of the book. When it comes to populism, and where we are in public discourse. Uh, I write it up like this. I basically think people have seen that bullshit works in business and in politics, and they have pushed it way too far. You know, New Labour had a point in trying to engage in some spin and some bullshit, but they just pushed it way too far. They overestimated its power massively... Companies overestimate the power of these things. PR companies overestimate the power. And instead of thinking of good communication as being a clear and persuasive framing of a truth, it has become endemic to think of PR or spin as actually trying to make people believe what you want them to believe, not what is actually true. And I think the PR industry, I mean, I think it's... It's just, gone, it's just gone way too far up its own backside in, in, in believing that it can sort of spin a, a rat into a squirrel. You know, it's not going to work, and, and people will see through it, and they do see through it. So I think spin went way too far, but in the process of pushing it that far for 30 years and political establishments controlling the messaging, not being authentic, never really levelling with people obfuscating and talking in ways that were not sounding like normal English. The political class lost touch with the population and they, they lost the trust of the population. That, that was th- th- that's the, the communication theory of them losing trust. They also lost trust because a lot of stuff went wrong and, and that's, a, that's a, perhaps a bigger part of it but their communication was no longer working. They could no longer communicate and Populists came along, and the best, the, the, the best of them is Donald Trump in, in, in communication form, and they basically took a different communication style that sounded very refreshing, and the US election was an election in which you had someone who was deemed to be inauthentic versus someone who was deemed to be a liar, or, or fast and loose with the facts, And the interesting thing is their honesty ratings are about the same. People were just so fed up with that kind of controlled messaging um, and that kind of bullshit that the other bullshit sounded positively kind of exciting and and, and, and sort of grabby. And so basically, the the political establishment had lost the form of communication and this new communication sounded good. The second thing to say about the populist communication was... Was that when they were fast and loose with the facts, which was a lot, <coughs> industrial scale? When they fast and loose with the facts, Trump was often communicating a kind of connection to his audience. So, when Trump does stuff like engage in world wrestling, entertainment, theatre, and uh, you know engages in a, a kind of wrestling thing, uh, it's, you can see it on YouTube. It's it's very funny. Um, and he's body slams Vince McMahon and then starts beating him. I'm sure there was an element of theatre to that, okay? I'm sure that was bullshit. However, it communicates a sort of who he's trying to appeal to, what he's about. And I think the populists have been, often when they've been fast and loose with the facts, they've been, they've been connecting with people in a very successful way and it's not about the facts, which gets you to the proposition that Trump wasn't really someone you were meant to take literally. You, you, that, you were missing the point if you took him literally. Trump stood up and said unemployment's not 5% in the US, it's 30 or 40%. Not true, Mr Trump. However, it says it, it connects to perhaps a secretary of the population who feel their job is insecure, or that the labour market is against them, or that they're particular economic class has been has been, um, has been overlooked. So there were all sorts of things in the Trump bullshit, this new kind of bullshit that were actually communicating very effectively to a particular class. So that, that's this kind of relationship between the theory and where you, you get in public discourse. But there's one most important point that kind of sings through the book, and I think is the key one, which is There's no coincidence that we're worried about post-truth in an era in which we're particularly divided and our politics is very fraught. And all the arguments I can find for why we're drowning in bullshit in general and why we're drowning in in it now come back to the fact that people, when they're kind of worried most, most of all about which team... Is he on? And which team am I on? um, They stop asking, or they park their more rational selves or their more critical (laughs) selves. And the key question becomes, does my team believe this, or does the other team believe it? It becomes all about tribes. And so what's interesting about the period we're living in is not so much that we have people trying to say stuff that isn't true... It's that we have more people believing stuff that isn't true, and I, it's more people who are kind of dispensing with the rational economic model, and they're doing it because they're feeling it's all about my tribe versus the other tribe. So they literally will believe things because that's what the tribe believes, rather than that's what you know evidence where evidence takes you. And that, I think, is where we are and why we're worried about post-truth and fake news and all of those things. And for me, the biggest single thing you have to do is try and deal with the causes of the division rather than try and police the facts, which gets you really to where, where, where I think... I'm a great admirer of full fact. But it's interesting that in the election we had... It felt to me as though people really weren't interested in the facts and the IFS analysis. It just didn't seem to me to be playing very big because we were so divided. It was more about which side do you feel is, 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 is backing your, your interests. And it wasn't about, well, do the costings add up or is this true or does this make sense? The good news for full... So that's the bad news for full fact. The bad news is basically people weren't caring about facts and there's no point in fact-checking if no one's interested. The good news is... I think in the long term, people do tend to gravitate towards truth rather than falsehood. I think people, you know, for temporary periods, may park their rational selves. But I think in the long term, the economists and their rational models do tend to have a kind of truth in them. So I'm a believer in long-term rationality, which gets you to the need for the full facts around. But I do think we can have periods or eras where the facts are kind of dispensed with and seem less important.
0: Evan, thank you very much. That's a very good quick introduction to the book. As I said, there's loads and loads more uh, stuff in the book if you uh, attempted to delve in, and we'll pick up some more of the themes when we get into the conversation. I'm quite intrigued by this sort of notion of a direct line of sight from Alistair Campbell to Donald Trump. I think that's uh, very good to get on the record, Alistair. <laughs> anyway, um, so... Without further ado, Will, you know, is it as hopeless a case as Evan is portraying that we're in this era of sort of really tribal politics that people actually aren't really looking at the facts or indeed just choose which facts they'll believe, which fact checks they'll believe on whether they support the idea that they uh, first held? You know, is it, are you sort of basically the labour of Sisyphus trying to push that rock up and just being crushed down again, or is it worthwhile? What can we do about it, Well.
2: Um, Well, what can we do about it is the right question. And that's the question that Full Fact exists to answer. Uh, Full Fact, as Jill said, we're the UK's independent fact-checking organisation. That means it's our job to do something which is really very simple. Rather than, as Evan has, assimilating a great deal of Information and ideas about how information works in our society, we start in the other direction. We start from an individual claim that a politician might make, that a journalist might make, that you might say in the pub or over the kitchen table to your friends or family. And we ask, is that right? And how do we know? And should anyone trust it? And we've done that now thousands upon thousands of times. And so I think Evan and I make quite complementary. Perspectives because Evan has thought about this from the big picture downwards, if you like, and we have thought it from the little picture upwards. Um, what I want to tell you about is that process and how we applied it during the election and what we learned from all those specific examples. But to explain what we do about it, it's worth saying that fact checking perhaps isn't just what you think it is. Um, absolutely, the starting point of what we do is individual fact checks of individual claims. But our first service is to give. People reliable information about claims they care about things where you want to know is this true or not being a reliable source of information the thing we do on top of that is asking people to correct the record when they make mistakes we are responsible for corrections in all, um, almost all national newspapers corrections on the record from the Prime Minister and other government ministers from charities and businesses and trade associations we put pressure on people who are bullshitting in public life, and we ask them to correct the record, and we ask them to be aware that they will be checked when they make important claims in public life. And then we go one step beyond that, and we say, well, given all these examples we have, what seem to be the causes of the bullshit we encounter? And so on that famous morning when Theresa May came back from her long walk towards electoral oblivion and announced the campaign. (laughs) And Brenda uh, reacted famously with, uh, oh, no, not another one, um, as did every fact-checker and, I suspect, political journalist in the country. We were actually doing some quite useful work before the election was announced. Um, One of the things we were working on was a project called Need to Know. It's utterly, utterly dull unless you're a certain kind of person. We had got together with the UK Statistics Authority and the Economic and Social Research Council and the House of Commons Library, and we had said, what are the big questions that this country is going to face over the next five years? Do we have the data we need to understand them? Have we analysed that data, and are we communicating that effectively to the people making those decisions? And if not, in time for the election in 2020, (laughs) let's fill those
3: gaps.
2: (laughs) Um, One thing fact-checkers don't do is predictions. (laughs) Um, But the need-to-know project is a really good example of the fact that there are solvable problems around bullshit in public life. And the job of fact-checkers is to work out which bits are solvable and start to tackle them. And actually making sure good quality information is provided is one of those examples. We were delighted just before the election when the public administration committee... Published a report, and one of its recommendations, as a result of our evidence, was that each departmental select committee should scrutinize the quality of information provided by its department. And that is one more brick in the wall of making sure we have reliable information in public debate. Now, this stuff is not glamorous, but it is important. Um, preventing and preempting misinformation is a key part of having a well founded public debate, and one reason for that is frankly that many of the protagonists of public debate are not very expert and not very apt. The number of claims that we have fact-checked that have turned out to be wrong where the error is so obviously due to somebody not having a clue what they're talking about (laughs) is quite startling. And if you consider that we are a country run by arts graduates, and I speak as an arts graduate, who are usually busy generalists working to tight deadlines dealing with hugely complex and technical topics. It is really a miracle that we get anything right at all.
3: (laughs) Um,
2: And so we should think really seriously about making sure that the supply of high quality information is there in the first place and that's one of the things that full fact's been working about so i will add to evan's list of four causes people simply not knowing what they're talking about <laughs> and if you don't have reliable information then everyone's a bullshitter you me or anyone else but let's take it on to the election we survived our brenda moment and we started putting together plans full fact normally a team of 11 people within 2 or 3 weeks had expanded to a team of 30 people we were delighted to welcome a whole squad of House of Commons Library uh, researchers um, joining our fact-checking team during the election, which I think was a really great um, initiative on the part of the House of Commons Library. We teamed up with organizations like the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the Health Experts of the Nuffield Trust, the Migration Observatory at Oxford University, to put together expertise on all the topics you could hope for. And between us, we published more than 100 fact-checks and explainers during the election. We fact-checked six manifesto launches, that's every party with more than 1% of the vote of the last election. We fact-checked seven live TV debates, including with BBC and ITV. We were in all kinds of media, including a daily column in The Evening Standard, right through to Buzzfeed. (laughs) We published 18 videos on all kinds of subjects, reaching 2 million views online. We reached, I think, something like um, 18.5 million people on Facebook, although reach on Facebook is a term you shouldn't attach too much importance to, Mm -hmm. 9.5 million people on Twitter, largely by live fact-checking those debates. And that was made possible by the Nuffield Foundation, wonderful social science funders, and 2,000 crowd funders who got behind us doing that. And that was all from a standing start in eight weeks. And what we found, actually, was that there is huge demand for reliable information. The flip side of bullshit, as Evan is saying, is that when people can find information they do feel able to trust, there is a real appetite for that. But actually, for most of us, being able to distinguish information we feel confident trusting is a very tall order indeed. Um, And that takes us neatly on to a shift which I'm not sure I felt was completely (coughs) reflected in the book. Um, Evan uh, ended up with an argument about what happens next, and one of the things he argues is that the media needs to get on with its job, and I couldn't agree more. Fundamentally, good, reliable journalism is at the heart of, and understanding our world, of having sound public debate. Uh, But he also argued that there are three conditions that that depends on. One is competition between reliable sources in journalism. The second is a diverse ecosystem and that the public understand what they are getting. And the third is that there are some media platforms shared by all. And I think the last two of those conditions are under real challenge at the moment. And I'm talking about the online space. So to give you an idea of just how much our world is changing, Right now, according to Ofcom's News Consumption Survey, which came out a week or two ago, 89% of 65-year-olds and over are getting news from television. For the population generally, that's 69%, and for 16- to 24-year-olds, that's 49%. Television is absolutely the dominant source of news in this country. If you ask people, what is your main source of news about what's going on in the UK today? In this room, I'm willing to bet most people will put their hands up when I say Internet. In the wider country, two-thirds of people say television. Television is far and away the leading source of information, but it is moving away so quickly. The next generation is coming up online they're coming up with a proliferation of sources and actually being able to distinguish which sources you can trust and which sources you cannot trust is something that is practically very difficult to do and that's what you see when you start tracking online so we knew that this shift was critically important and if we had not already noticed it the campaigns last year certainly showed it Uh, we had obviously the brexit campaign Um, We don't know what Remain did, but um, the campaign manager of Vote Leave was kind enough to blog after the campaign, saying that they had used 1 billion targeted adverts on Facebook as part of their campaign. 1 billion in a country of 50-odd million adults. is quite astonishing. Online is the space in which elections are increasingly fought, and it is the space in which the next generation is getting its information. It's not absolutely taking over yet, the description of TV as exit pursued by a snail is a pretty (laughs) fair overview of what's going on. But this is the new ground that we have to start to understand. And to think just how um, quick this revolution is, if you even go back to 2010 when Full Fact started, you could more or less make a list of every political outlet with more than a million in its audience. You could more or less make a list and just think, we will monitor all of those and we will target those. And nowadays it is possible for something to blow up and reach a million people overnight from almost anywhere. And I do mean overnight. The last, um, one of the last fact checks we posted the night before the election reached one and a half million people. Um, And that's just full fact. And there are a lot of people, frankly, posting things which are much more fun, reaching many more people. So that's the challenge. And as we saw last year um, in America there was this challenge of what became known as fake news and then that label became completely useless soon after. Uh, But genuinely made-up stories, made up in some cases by Macedonian teenagers to generate clicks and advertising revenue for websites with no regard for the truth, simply to to make money, Uh, were seen in the US election and were huge in their reach in the US election. And so the obvious question for us was, is this coming to the UK? What do we need to do to protect, we as a country need to do to protect democracy and the viability of democracy in the UK? Is that made-up stories a threat to us? And also, what kind of partisan campaigning, what kind of underground campaigning are we going to see? So we teamed up with First Draft, Claire Wardle's um, group, who... I'm I'm very sorry, Claire can't be here tonight, but um, First Draft are the global experts in online verification, of verifying user-posted content online. Um, They just... Uh, when the election was called, um, finished the cross check project in the French elections, which brought together something like 37 newsrooms in a collaborative fact checking and verification expert throughout their election campaign. And they had become experts in monitoring the online space and figuring out what needed to be uh, checked and responded to and serving the public that way. So we said, come over to London and give us a hand. Uh, we've got quite a lot on our plate. So Claire came and she brought together a brilliant team. Um, and we started monitoring what was spreading online. We used specialist tools like CrowdTangle, Newswhip, Whip, for any of you interested in the geeky details. These things can tell you what is being shared on social media, what is accelerating in its sharing on social media, what looks likely to be peaking on social media that afternoon. And that kind of insight really lets you target your interventions, target your fact checking in ways that can make a huge difference. This was made possible, I ought to say, by Facebook and Google, um, who, fascinatingly, because this is a topic that they have realized they have to confront, but they maybe came to slightly slowly originally. When the election was called, both companies were in touch with me that day, saying, how can we support you during the election? That would not have happened 12 months before, and they were very generous in um, making it possible to assemble this team. so we got together a group of half a dozen young journalists, and many of whom are skulking uh, halfway down on the right-hand side, if you want to talk to them afterwards. Um, and we started tracking what was spreading online. Um, I want to tell you three uh, sets of examples that I think are illustrative of wider themes. The first is about CNN. CNN creating the narrative was the post on Twitter that was shared 20,000 times. It was um, purporting to depict CNN um, corralling a a group of protesters to be a backdrop for a story about Muslims um, fighting back against terror. And, um, in fact, uh, this protest, this this demo was uh, going on anyway. It was being um, carried through police barriers. Um, They were reporting on the protest, not using it as a backdrop. But this idea that the mainstream media is selling you stories and cannot be trusted is extremely powerful in certain sections of the online space and it's something that we've seen amplified more and more vigorously. And it comes to this, uh, this question that Evans raised of, do we still have a shared source of information, and a shared understanding about the country we live in? And while the answer at the moment is yes, I think that answer is contingent and is one we need to be very careful of um, the threat to. Uh, because we benefit, ultimately, from having some shared understanding of the world we live in. The second is um, after the Manchester bombings. Um, Some of you will have seen an image being shared, a grid of photographs of um, people who were victims of the bombings or said to be victims of the bombings. Once we started... um, Looking into that, once the team started looking into that, using photo verification techniques, tracing the photos back to their original sources, it turned out that we had um, stock photography in there. We had um, one of the protagonists of an online forum called 4chan, where um, lots of people have fun stirring up um, trouble and controversy and so on, Um, and other completely fake photos dropped into real photos of real victims. The interesting thing about that is how difficult it is to prove that kind of thing, and how difficult it is to see through that kind of thing unless you know the right techniques, unless you have the right tools or are aware of where the right tools are. Nowadays, information online is spreading almost principally through images and videos, and they are harder and harder to verify and get behind and disentangle. Some of you may have seen the demonstration that came out, I think, today, of artificial intelligence creating what appears to be a real video of Barack Obama speaking. That is the world we are about to live in, the world that we are living in almost right now. And it is going to become extraordinarily difficult to disentangle fact from fiction at a technical level. And then the third example I want to give really illustrates Evan's uh, wider point about partisanship which is that both um, a conservative activist, um, an individual um, acting completely off his own bat, posted a meme that went very viral um, about public spending seven years ago in 2010 versus now, uh, which contained a number of inaccurate figures and a a lot of analysis that was also quite questionable, Um, and also mixed up, you know, dollars and pounds and things like that, so it was, you know... (laughs) quite troubled on several levels but it was an honest effort to tell you something about the world and it even listed its sources you know web links at the bottom and all the rest of it it was just really quite badly wrong but the guy was doing his best to make up something that was useful and informative for his friends um it took us three days to fact check that to take it back to the blessed public expenditure statistical analysis um in all its excel hell glory um, and to figure out what figures he had used, what figures he hadn't used, whether they were being correctly analyzed, explain that, package it as an image that was shareable and useful for people. But when we got that entire package right, that was the thing that went out to a million and a half people with no advertising behind it, just because it was something people had seen, people wanted to know, and it was packaged right in a way that was useful for people. On the other side of the path of uh, we had David Davis's expenses, um, an image showing David Davis's expenses versus disability benefit cuts, um, the theme obviously being these are being cut while he's um, having lots of nice things on your dime. Um, some of the nice things were real and findable in the expenses records. Some of the nice things may even have been under, under-reporting what was out there. But the expenses records are these PDFs of scans of forms from years ago. It's completely impossible in any reasonable amount of time to find out what David Davis did or did not actually collect. My colleague Sinead had a lovely afternoon wading through PDFs of heating, um, uh, heating bill costs and that sort of thing. But there again, somebody was trying to make an honest point and appears to have cocked it up in a way that's actually completely understandable because there wasn't much of a better option. But these were the big actors we saw online. They were highly partisan individuals, unconnected from official campaigns, making claims that were at least over-ambitious, sometimes very clearly, honestly attempted to be sourced in an honest way, but equally still inaccurate. And it's that group of people I find fascinating, because as Evan uh, ends his introduction, those who want a less bullshit-prone society had better worry about the cause of the divisions as much as they do about the symptoms. Now, this group of people... We need to give them better information. We need to give them the ability to make their case with the best information this country has about what's going on. But fundamentally, is it not possible also that one of the reasons they're all pissed off about the political system is they don't recognise the political system as recognising the world they live in, The, the quality of information that politicians use to understand the world and journalists use to understand the world, a world of average people who don't really exist anywhere, is actually tremendously dangerous to the public recognizing the political system as representing them. Um, And so I leave you with one last thought, which is that if, as it seems, the public is irredeemably convinced that politicians lie, and by the way, journalists lie, although TV journalists lie a lot less than other people, according to (laughs) opinion surveys, um, 50-50 chance of Evan being trusted, one in five chance... Of uh, uh, journalists generally being trusted, similarly politicians. But if people are convinced of that, and this hyperpartisan noise online absolutely amplifies that attitude, then what incentive is there for politicians not to live down to those expectations? Mm-hmm. If nobody will trust them anyway, why not behave in an untrustworthy way if it works? And so the real question, I think, for fact checkers and for all of us, is how do we create space for people to be trusted not just to be distrusted when trust is earned how do we get people to actually give it and i think that's perhaps the big challenge of the online space
0: devon let's just come back to you because i think it's a very interesting interesting point about creating a space for politicians to be trusted there's a very brief moment wasn't there in the election campaign when theresa may her, when the daily mail had a front page of theresa may saying, at last a politician prepared to be honest with you. I think that lasted the weekend until the nothing that has was changed social care, press conference. That was Ooh, the social yeah. care. But the idea then was finally we had somebody who's not lying to you in an election campaign who is actually confronting you with quite difficult truths and actually some of the things the conservative Conservatives are trying to do about you know yeah. unlocking Winter things fuel, were yeah, seen yeah, as yeah, a bit yeah. of a change and a bit of a an attempt to have a more honest discourse. But you could take the message out of the election campaign that that actually just blew up in their faces, whereas the sort of Jeremy Corbyn, you know, you can have no tuition fees, you can have this, you can have that, actually went down rather well and was rather an attractive package. So, actually... You could
1: view it both ways, though, Jill, couldn't you? Because it was certainly true that the Tory manifesto did have some sort of difficult Mm -hmm. messages in it, which I think Labour's perhaps didn't. Um, But the Tory manifesto also had... No numbers attached, so the criticism that they forgot to cost the manifesto was compelling. But the other thing was that the Tory campaign. Uh, I, I think it, it. I think actually, in the end, the sort of the Maybot, the sort of wooden Theresa thing, was w- 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 did it for them. I, I think she. Actually, a bit like it was. Maybe you could say it was a sort of rerun of the American election. That there was, she just didn't come across as someone, who you could sort of relate to in the way that many Americans felt they couldn't relate to Hillary Clinton. There was something about her personal presentation that, was, that wasn't authentic. And so there was kind of honesty in some dimensions, if you like, and less honesty in other dimensions. And the same with Labour. I think Corbyn, I think Corbyn came across as very authentic compared to Theresa May in that election. And I, I, I think people will ask why she came across so, so badly. But but, So I think you can sort of run that election both ways. You could see it as the controlled messaging bullshit thing that had been run Mm -hmm. by political establishments since the 90s or 80s had one last go with Theresa May and it spectacularly blew up. Or you could say, Mm -hmm. oh, it's 1992 all over again, the party that tried to be honest about difficult truths got got, 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 got a bad outcome. So it's, it's a sort of tricky one, that particular one. But Will's point... About rewarding honesty. It's, honestly, it's so important because, in fact, chapter seven, there's a, I, I refer to this, um, this book that goes back to the 1950s of life in an Italian town. The book is called The Moral Basis of a Backward Society. And um, an American political scientist just goes and lives in an Italian town because he wants to know why it's so backward. And he just observes it for, for, for a year or so. And he tries to explain why the buses don't connect and why the kids are educated so badly. And, and this is this is, much, this is un, almost like an undeveloped country at, at the time. And he concludes this, there's this kind of moral code in which everybody behaves selfishly and dishonestly. And everybody assumes everybody's behaving selfishly and dishonestly. And obviously, if you're assumed to be dishonest, then there's no benefit to a reputation, so you might as well be dishonest. And it's it's what economists would call an equilibrium. It's self-sustaining. Once you're stuck in that low road of, I think you're dishonest, so you behave dishonestly, you live down to my expectations, to use your great phrase, then then you really are, it's very difficult to get out of it. And so we do want to worry, exactly as Will says about, about that dishonesty, and we want to make sure that we're capable of rewarding someone who is trustworthy. And, and, and in fact, I, I, I agree with Well, I think the problem is not, that I think sometimes, sometimes it's not actually that we're, s- we're so believing
3: uh,
1: of things. The problem is that we're not sufficiently rewarding of people who say the truth. And that, that does sort of come mm-hmm. back to your point about the party that tells a difficult truth. Is it going to be punished or not?
0: Okay, let's go to some questions, then we'll come back to some things about what might be done. I yeah. think we have mics. Do we have mic? Yes, Tess oh and Rob with mics. Let's come down to the front here. And we'll do it. Let's take them in some clutches so we can have lots of them. Yeah, tell us who you are.
4: Um, my name is Javase Porden, and I work at the um, Department of Business, Energy, Industrial, Sashi. Actually, um, remember,
0: we're on the record before you yeah, say Yeah, we're on it. the record. <laughs> regret, she said. Just, okay, I'm just, you know, just a streaming. student, definitely. <laughs> <laughs>
4: It's part-time student as well, so I'll take that um on here instead. <laughs> doesn't <laughs> um, necessarily <laughs> actually
3: <so> <laughs>
4: uh, Evan, my question is how much do you think the, the scope for the um more outlandish um kind of peak bullshit and outright lying uh is there and um is created by the sense that actually no one really knows what they're talking about in mm-hmm. a lot of the kind of uh commentary and the and the political classes and, and mainly perhaps because that's based on the fact that a lot of them are coming from a kind of economics background, maybe PPE background in which they've learned kind of rational economic models which really are not very good at predicting human behavior or um, general economic trends. And so it's kind of creating a climate in which you know, economists are there saying, well, if Brexit happens, this economic outcome will happen. Yeah. Or if the experts okay. don't know, why yeah. shouldn't I just exactly what I want to Okay, be. well, yeah. let's, let's
0: have yeah. Our yeah. Our yeah. A, moment, uh, a moment with Michael Gove on experts and <laughs> whatever. So, do you want oh, yeah, yeah. to just do I, that? Yeah.
1: Sorry, I, I, think that, I think there's a lot in what you're saying. Yeah. And I think, that, I think that basically what has made our politics so fraught is the sort of delayed reaction to the financial crash. Which was at the end of a period of 20 years in which loads of people basically thought, "I've never trusted this economic model, which tells me that bankers have to be paid a million and a half quid, and that the, this is good for us, and this is working, and we're a successful. This is the successful model." I don't. I think most people always thought we a bit sceptical of it, and then it blew up in their faces, and then they had to pay out, and the banks mm. just the bankers walked away with the money. I mean. The, it really isn't surprising that they came away thinking, these people <laughs> don't know what they're talking about. And uh, we were willing to go along with it, and then it, it was obvious that they didn't know what they were talking about. We're never going to trust them again. So I think that I think that did have quite a lot to do with it. And then you say, well, let's start believing what we want to believe, um, rather than what these people are telling you. And th- you're seeing the same, by the way, with Grenfell, where, the, where there was so much... Annoyance before and mistrust before the fire, quite unsurprisingly, when there's a fire and everything that the, the residents had said turned out to be right and the, ex, you know, the, the authorities yeah. were wrong, you're not going to blame the residents for saying we don't have a scrap of trust in anything you say thereafter. And um, so that's just like a sort of mini example of the whole national experience of the last.
0: So the take last economists, take so economists. We had just in the New Year, we had Andy Haldane here. Who created some headlines, which yeah. I think he particularly expected to do, talking about economics Michael Fish moment when yeah. it sort of got everything wrong and needed to sort of recalibrate and rebuild trust. So if you're an economist, if you're talking to a bunch of economists, uh, and they sort of say, actually we've got some important things to say, it's not all rubbish. I mean, you know, there are some reasons to believe X, Y, and Z. How do you go about rebuilding trust after that sort of you know cataclysmic failure that we saw <coughs> to predict the financial crisis? Well.
1: My, my basic view on this is that the way you do it is you have to have pluralism within the subject. And I, it's like my point that you have to have pluralism within the, within the mainstream media. And indeed, I, I, I think it's important that there are other fact-checking services apart from Wills. I think there are. They, and there are. Yeah, the, the BBC has Reality Others Check. And there's a Channel 4 one. Wills, I think, is, by the way, much the most, sort of, is the best... <laughs> but, but it's important for the credibility of Will that there are others. It's important for the credibility of economics that there's pluralism within it so that it, it's, it, it's when the public think there is an elite or mm-hmm. an establishment or there's one kind of body of experts and they are being proved wrong that they've got nowhere to turn. So what you want is there to be, is always to be a kind of a multi- multiplicity. If they all get it wrong, then it's like, well, these seem to be sort of honest mistakes that life is difficult. We, we, we get things wrong. But I think it's very important that there's not seen to be. It's just like there's this, there's the experts,
0: and there's everybody else. But isn't it, isn't it as debilitating, I'm going to come to the question here, isn't it as debilitating the idea there used to be all those jokes that you know you know economists sort it's of 24 people degree. 25 yeah. opinions or whatever and certainly politicians when you're talking to them if you're sitting in the treasury when they want to discard economists, they always say, "But they never can't even agree among themselves." I mean, isn't your pluralism actually much more debilitating rather than well, I don't liberating? Well, I, I think by in the policy. middle of the
1: last decade, I don't think there was much pluralism, and there wasn't much okay. debate, and there wasn't much attempt to create a debate, and there were no kind of saboteurs who were going in. I mean, they, they were there, but they weren't—they weren't taken seriously enough. So I—I think it didn't come. It didn't really look like, and it wasn't really. A very, um,
0: so, t- so take Brexit. Should the BBC have given? There was a lot of debate in the Jill Matheson review after Brexit about the way the BBC treated you know the sort of balance of opinion. And should you actually regard balance as 99.9% of economists think this is going to have a bad effect, but we have to balance the one you know one representative of that with one person, well, climate that, change, that one or whatever? That, is that, one that
1: for me is, I, I look, I think it's particularly difficult for the BBC, licence fee funded in the midst of a referendum or an election campaign where I think we just have to tread on eggshells yes. and we would naturally do that in trying to be fair to each side in the campaign which has a... An, an, at the end of the vote, which is going to end in a vote. But I... I mean, I think all the BBC can do is tell you what it knows and what the facts are. And so we know that it's not £350 million that we mm. will have available to spend on the NHS. I mean, that, that's not a... No need to argue about that. Um, We can just say that. Um, We know, a little less reliably, but fairly reliably, I've hosted a debate today, that 85% of economists or thereabouts think it's bad for the economy. We don't know it's bad for the economy to leave the EU. So we can't say, oh, it's bad for the economy, the experts say that. No, we just have to say... You know, the vast bulk of economists think that trade is good and that the EU leaving would be, would be bad. But there may be other reasons you want to leave the mm. EU. Well, you know, I think the BBC just has to put it all out there. And, and I mean, the actual, the very specific thing sure. that got, mm. I think, that was difficult in the referendum is, and this is a sort of separate point to anything we've mentioned, is when people throw things into the public discourse in order to create noise that suits them. Mm -hmm. So if I throw into public discourse a false fact, 350 million, Mm. and if it comes from someone who's important, Mm. the Leave campaign, Mm. it's difficult for the BBC to ignore it. Mm. And so the BBC reports it and rebuts Mm. it. But in reporting it and Mm. rebutting it, you're serving the purpose of the campaign Mm. because the whole conversation is is it 350 or is it not 350 which is exactly what they want the conversation to be rather than a multitude of other conversations that it could be going on that day so there was an awkward thing but by and large i think pluralism i don't i don't want the bbc any more than i want will to be the ultimate kind of ministry of truth in all these things where we sit around we proclaim this is the case fact it'll be bad for the british to leave the eu i mean that's just ridiculous we have to rely on people to kind of search out and listen and, and, and read a little bit for themselves.
0: Okay, let's go here.
5: Thanks. Yeah. Um, my name is Max. I'm uh, at Sense About Science. I want to ask about, um, particularly, Will, you talk about this proliferation of um, new online media platforms. Um, I guess many of them are sort of hyper partisan, and the, the, the effect they're kind of having, in, you know, splintering the debate, mm-hmm. and ma- meaning people are having totally different kind of conversations, different facts, sets of facts. Um, what I've never quite got settled in my mind is, is what's the difference between or what, what are the new features of this kind of social media landscape to a traditional media landscape where presumably in, in the old days everyone had their own newspaper with its own position <coughs> or I think sometimes if you, know, if you drive across America like every 10 minutes there's a new AM radio station with a totally different talk radio host. Are these online platforms just making voices and opinions visible that were always there but weren't visible? Are they encouraging different kinds of conversations? Are they only different in their scale? Uh, yeah, that, that, that's, that's my question.
2: Okay. Um, just quickly yeah. to respond to something Evan yeah. said first. Um, on the single source of truth, just say I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Full fact links to all of our sources specifically because we don't want people to take yeah. our word for it. We want people to test things for themselves. Yeah. And I was very proud recently to discover that we are one of the top ten sources of referrals to the Office for National Statistics website. (laughs) Um, We are helping people discover the treasure trove of information out there and make their own minds up. That's our job. Um, On this, I can't give you an empirical answer to all of that. Um, So... I suppose I would say we have to make the distinction between free speech and access to public platforms. It's not the case that everyone used to have their own newspaper. It was the case that four people used to have their own newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> um
0: now,
2: now almost anyone has a platform with the potential to reach millions of people. And a much, much larger group of people have platforms that do reach millions of people on a regular basis. And because the distribution costs have crashed. That has become possible. So, I was looking at the Ofcom News Consumption mm. Report, which is really fascinating if you're that kind of person. One of the sources that is massive among 16 to 24 year olds, with 11% of people using it for news, is something called the Lad Bible. I'm willing to believe that a chunk of people in this room have not heard of the Lad Bible. Um, some people are
0: nodding, though. Some <laughs> no, people are nodding.
1: Which is by is by some some <laughs> people
2: who are not 16 to 24 are nodding as well. So, it's, it's getting around a bit. Um, it's, a, it's a source of news that. It uh, hits 3% of the general population, 11% of sixteen to twenty-fours. We are seeing this pr- proliferation, and that is powerful. But we are also seeing, if I can put it this way, the democratization of democracy. These, these campaigns that we have had only recently are campaigns in which somebody at the very mm. grassroots can do something mm. that genuinely reaches mm. a massive chunk of voters. Mm. And that's tremendously exciting. That's something we should be excited about. And one of the things I think full fact needs to do is make sure that those people have the best information we can get them from the official sources and all the rest of it. But it completely upturns our traditional model of how information is disseminated. And to pick up something Evan was saying about people don't want facts during the election, what was completely fascinating, watching the online conversations versus political conversations, uh, the airwaves um, conversations, the campaigns conversations, is that obviously the national campaign was hugely distorted by Manchester and then by London Mm -hmm. Bridge, the two biggest attacks. By the last week, all people were talking about was security. But actually, what people were talking about online was what the Ipsos Mori Issues Index said people thought were the biggest issues Mm -hmm. facing Britain today. Immigration, Mm -hmm. the NHS, the economy, Brexit. Mm -hmm. That's what people were talking about. Those are the issues people Mm. thought affected their lives. And that was the conversation that was actually happening between people. And I'm willing to bet that even before the internet, that's exactly what was happening in pubs Mm. and in kitchens while the airwaves went on about whatever they choose to go on about. So I think there's some continuity in that people's conversations are different from Westminster Mm. conversations, to use the cliche. Mm. But I think there is also a
1: radical change going on.
0: So you must have been running slightly to catch up with what was going on in social media as you started your book four years ago. And, uh, yeah, and sort of I mean, sort of, I, I, I think, think social saying.
1: media's role is, is, is that it, it, uh, two things. It accelerates all the processes we're talking about, so they happen in a day rather than over a period. But for me, the biggest thing about it, which is, will be my answer to your question, is it's, I think in the days of old media, people had very clear associations with products they were buying or consuming so they had there were so few products that you basically you knew the difference between the sun and the bbc i mean both had a place and both were very good and you 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 you, but you sort of knew what you were getting and i think people by and large are quite good at you know over time at spotting a pattern that this thing is left wing or this thing is exaggerates or this Mm -hmm. thing is unreliable that people are good at that. I think it's, it's got so fast on, on social media that I think the, kind of the ability to have a reputation or to know what the source is, it takes a bit of effort. It's not like just picking up the sun and knowing what you're getting. It, basically, you have to go back in and look at where it's come from and then research it. So for me, that's the, the big difference. It's that you, you no longer quite know what it is. I mean, personally, on Facebook, I, I sort of follow Channel 4 News and BBC News and, and, and Reuters and things mm. that are kind of... I sort <laughs> of know what I'm getting. But I do actually get loads from the lab Bible posted on my timeline. It's often very entertaining. But it's... it's. But, but I, I, you know, I think this will get us to mm. the conversation, Jill, about what you do about it. Mm. And what you have to do is encourage and train people to be able to tell the difference between mm. different mm. outlets so that they, they, they sort of... If they want to, they can gravitate towards wonders mm. more likely to be reliable in certain respects.
0: And whose and um, who should be, you know, that's a that's good schools. conversation that's to have. School. Do you think that's, that's schools? schools? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's kids. I mean, I think
1: the, the, the old people don't need to be protected. If you're
2: willing to wait fifty years for it to have any effect, sure. We have a stock and flow problem. The people yeah. most lost on the internet are the golden oldies, not the sixteen-year-olds.
1: <laughs> are they believing it though? Are they? Are they? Because they know that the, that they, they kind of. Probably are looking at the BBC website, aren't they? It's the kids who are... Uh, th- I, I don't
2: have good evidence. I don't, <laughs> know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't um, know.
0: Okay, a bit of I evidence... But evidence. my point is,
2: yeah. as much uh, important as schooling is, and I couldn't agree with you more, mm. but we have a lot more to do to teach critical thinking or whatever you yeah. want to call mm. it. If we just teach everyone mm. up to the age of 18 and then we wait for that to have an effect, we are waiting 50 years to have solved the problem. Actually, the real question is, what do you do with the stock of adults who you mm. can't sit down in the classroom and teach new skills mm. to?
0: Okay, let's go over here, and then we've got a couple of people there, so liberate the microphone from Max. Yes, My, could
6: you my name you? is Graham Graham Pycock from the University of Westminster. Uh, aren't you both underestimating how bad things have already become, uh, and isn't it going to get much worse before it gets better, in the sense that we now understand from neuroscience how biased we are as humans, group think, confirmation bias, and so on. We have young people who are far happier with umpteen, almost worthless opinions, who are impatient of discourse and complexity, which is of course what politics is really all about, reconciling differences and so on, Um, and the preference for emoting rather than understanding. We are moving surely into a trend of post-truth politics. It is very, very dangerous. Uh, And I suspect that, uh, I say, the idea of teaching critical thinking must be one solution, but we, we actually don't have as yet real solutions long term. But to I, I, feel like
1: yeah. I, I okay. sort of agree and I sort of okay. don't agree. <laughs> I mean, I think the John Lewis ads at Christmas are fantastic and they make me cry every year, and they appeal to me and and I emote to them. So so they they're, they're the sort of classic example of a piece of exploitative manipulation. Um, but if, I, if my experience of John Lewis over a period of, say, five years is really negative, I think those ads may work as making me cry in my nice stories, but I don't think they'll work in making me shop at John Lewis. And I, I, think I think Trump has connected brilliantly with his space, but if he turns out to be a rotten president, I don't think the communication is going to work for him. I mean, it all comes back to whether you ultimately believe communication has the power to sustainably make us accept things that are actually in contravention of the evidence in front of us. That we we can be made to go to John Lewis even if it's rubbish or we can be made to vote for Donald Trump. Now, these things do happen in history. We know nations can be hypnotised or entranced by demagogues who... Who, who manipulate public opinion. But these are quite exceptional cases. Most of the time, people are willing participants in the process of being manipulated, and if it's not suiting them because it's rubbish, then they kind of change their minds and they, 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 they move on. So Joe McCarthy is the example I, I, I would sort of, in a way, cite in the book. Joe McCarthy gripped a lot of people in the United States with his lies... And then it became sort of clear that he was a bully and a liar in a very highly publicised, televised showdown with the US Army. And most people just thought the guy's a liar and it didn't work anymore. So I'm, I'm sort of more optimistic. I think human beings have evolved to spot patterns. And if they spot lovely John Lewis ad, lovely service in the shop, then the ads kind of entrance you and take you into the shop. If they spot lovely ads rotten shop, then the ads stop working. But doesn't
0: this come to where you're sort of connecting to the product there? Because, you know, I watched John Lewis ad. Actually, I never watched John Lewis ads. but, you know, <laughs> cry, go and do my shopping at John Lewis, <laughs> think the stuff's rubbish, don't go there next year. Whereas, you know, if you're in the States, I watch Fox News, I voted Donald Trump... I then see Fox News telling me that Donald Trump is doing incredibly well, that he's not doing incredibly well because of those pesky Democrats that are frustrating him and stuff like that. I mean, do I really get that sort of direct personal feedback on things? You know, maybe my life's not getting markedly better or I see a bit. But it's all terribly disconnected. And one of the things that struck me, you know, certainly in the, new, in the US, is how much people have segmented their news consumption and yeah. only watch... News they fundamentally already agree with and don't then get any of that sort of BBC objective stuff. So can I judge Trump in four years' time?
6: John Lewis isn't running the country. Mm. Well,
1: no, John Lewis are trying fundamentally to do the same as Donald Trump, just manipulate mm. your beliefs in yeah. their favour. But I, I don't yeah, well, look you you're making a good point. How far and how sustainably mm. you can defy the gravity of reality is 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 the question <laughs> and, uh, and that, that is the question and I'm open-minded about it but I do think that the, sh- the period over which you can do that mm-hmm. doesn't last forever no I mean, you can do some damage in the interim obviously but it uh, doesn't last forever okay. okay we're
0: gonna come here and put a lady here
7: and thank you uh, Gwen Griffith Dixon King's College and the Kahi Foundation uh, I have a, um, a question that's sort of skiing off-piste for you so if it's too speculative I have an alternative question but uh, <laughs> no alternative facts um, and the question is really, I, I'm s- encouraged to ask it by, by hints that you both made. So that my off-the-wall question is, I- do you think there is some deep link between the ability to think that truth matters, to care about truth, including when the truth is against our preferences, and the ability to recognize other people in their otherness or their difference and their autonomy? I realise that may seem like a That's totally a, real, I total think it's a very good question. question. Uh, I think there yeah. may is be it a coincidence that? That, that extreme narcissism and st- extreme you know, or psychopathy share yeah. those two yeah. qualities of the fluency in lying and the inability to have empathy or a conscience and so on? Is there a, a connection in how we treat people? And Trump is a good example of... Well, I, I think of that is a really
1: interesting question. I wouldn't phrase it that way. I think open-mindedness is a quality mm. that protects you against bullshit. Open-mindedness is the quality that you want to encourage Mm. in people so that when a proposition kind of comes Mm. to them and it suits them to believe it, they sort of think, well, let me just see if I can see the other side of the argument. And I think that does go a bit with a kind of respect for fellow human beings. It's because it's thinking... I give this example in the book of a lie I swallowed that, that, that actually really gripped me, and I was amazed when I read about it. It was the one about the woman who sued McDonald's for the cup of coffee in her lap. So have you all heard about the woman who won $2 million because the, she was burnt by a McDonald's coffee while driving? And the story... I, I swallowed it. The story turns out to be very much more complicated than that and much more reasonable, and it wasn't an example of justice going mad and the lawyers taking over. But if I ask myself what... I needed to sort of see through that false narrative that I swallowed. It is that a sort of respect for... The, gosh, the, there was a jury that had thought about this for a few days, and there was a woman at the end of it... It is, it's, it's sort of respect for other human beings that makes you open-minded. So I think there is a connection. I think it's a, you put it in a very interesting way.
0: i just ask you something, Evan. I mean, if, if one of your colleagues... Not you. You've piloted the sort of new form of political interviewing, which is much more reasonable, moderate. But some of your colleagues, uh, either on the Today programme or on predecessor on Newsnight, have sort of, pilot, you know, made their names in a sort of uh, way that actually a politician dares admit that they're not, certain, they're not so sure they might take a slightly nuanced balanced view of something or whatever you know, that actually that's a sign of weakness, that's like they don't really know what they're doing uh, they're frankly a bit hopeless and all over the place and stuff like that I mean, isn't actually the sort of media partly responsible for the fact that we have this sort of thing which requires certainty of course, you know, we're doing absolutely yeah. the right thing, no, I think there's stuff something like in that that's that sort of you know, countered against that I think I think
1: there's something in that, I mean I think we've to some extent, trained our politicians to put up very big defences around themselves, and and we in the end got the kind of communication that ended in this kind of wrestling on the ground in a rather in a, in a rather futile way very often because they were just obfuscating to the point that it was um, you, you weren't learning anything, and and, and it, so y- yes, I think there's something in that. I think there is. I think there is something in that actually. Um, and I, do, I think the important question to ask yourself, which is back to Will's really good point about we, mustn't, we must reward honesty, is, is if someone came along and was honest and you know, gave a fairly frank view that they have been thinking something but they've switched because of this, uh, and they gave a good reason or a good account for themselves, would, would, would they be treated in the way you would want someone to be treated? Sometimes I think they are, and you would expect that, and sometimes I think you have to say we, we make life a bit difficult for people. Yeah, I think that's, there's some
0: truth in it. Okay, let's go and let's start. I've uh, got s- yes, lots of sir. hands going up, so let's start taking them in clutches. Let's go right to the back and then lady down here. So, yes.
1: Hi, uh, I'll stand quick up questions,
0: saying I'm at the questions.
1: back. Um, Alan Rennick from the UCL Constitution Unit. Um, I think I'm hearing four kinds of solutions here. So, one is the promotion of quality information, <coughs> another one is uh, teaching critical thinking, a third one is overcoming division.
3: And then a fourth one is getting ourselves out of ourselves out of the equilibrium of distrust. Now I think I understand in principle how you do the first three. <laughs> how on earth do you do the fourth
0: that 's a brilliant question because I wanted to ask that one too so let 's go here, yeah, so think about that yeah, yes.
8: hi. Um, I actually used to work at Full fact and now work at the BBC, so um, I sort of I can see hi. both sides of this. Um, <laughs> I was just wondering. Evan, when you were on the Today programme, and I think now uh, this still applies. People get very annoyed with the weather forecast when uh, when it's read out, and and it's it's so general. It's dry and sunny, or patches of rain, um, and people wonder, well, what does that mean for where I live? You know, where are we talking about? We talk about England, Cornwall, mm. uh, you know, the Shetland Islands, and I wonder whether there's something in that for um, how we communicate numbers and uh, how we do something about this post truth problem, which is basically that you know net migration at 330,000 doesn't mean anything to most people and whether there's something in the kind of personalization of facts I feel a bit uncomfortable with that phrase but whether there's something about telling people where they are where their local area is in comparison to this big national figure or this national narrative whether that might help
0: great let's have another question yes just in front yeah
5: Hi, uh, my name's Andre Petheram. Uh, I work for uh, Oxford Insights, which is a brand new, two-month-old startup. Um, but we're actually working—good
0: advertising. <laughs>
5: yeah, uh, we're actually working on a project with the Centre for Public Impact mm. at the moment, um, which is gen- basically um, targeted towards creating a, a wide conversation about the idea of government legitimacy. And I think I hear a lot of similar ideas going on here. Mm. But we've been focusing very much on the citizen side of things—how kind of we can become better at dealing with facts, but or with with. Um, with false news and so on, but what can governments themselves do to build legitimacy and trust in a post-truth world?
0: So I think that's very similar to Alan's thing. Let's take let's take those ones. You've got the sort of personalisation of data, you know, like going on the weather forecast for your postcode and looking hour by hour. It's so what you do if you cycle to work. It's what I do all the time, every day on the BBC website. You know, can, should we personalise data? make it relatable. do they just give
1: you the London forecast or the sort of the southeast No, it's forecast, different right? to it W2 different. and SE11. Yeah,
0: yeah, genuinely. <laughs> it's very important if you're going to cricket. So anyway, yeah. It may or be rubbish, <laughs> of course. Do you want to take but, some of some Well, we'll take some averages and okay. personalisation of data, and um, then we'll go to how do we rebuild trust.
2: Um, I'll start with the personalisation of information um, and Emily's elegant demonstration, which she's one of the best communicators I've ever worked with. Um, the weather forecast analogy, I think, is the perfect way of explaining just why the dealing with aggregates and averages in the use of data about the country is a game that has run its course. And now that we finally live in a world where it's possible to have higher resolution data faster, we need to move towards that as quickly as possible. Not just because very often the average wage, the Um, average level of employment, the average change in the economy don't reflect people's individual experiences and thus alienate people, but also because they're a rubbish way of making decisions. And Andy Haldane gave a really great speech called Who's Recovery, Um, which I've plugged um, on this stage, in fact, Mm. before, in which he disentangles this question of, okay, we've got economic growth, but who is actually feeling the economic growth? And that is such a central question. We now have Tesco um, refining its marketing almost on a person-by-person basis based on its knowledge of you, your area, what you'd like to buy, etc., etc. Government should at least be able to think about economic policy in um, higher resolution terms than it currently does and politicians ought to be able to debate it that way too. So I think that's critically important. In terms of the distrust thing, um, the equ- how do you solve equilibrium distrust? That's just a brilliant question. And the answer is you have to build trust somewhere. I mean, the only possible way out of that is to either preserve or create trusted institutions. We are astonishingly lucky in this country to have the BBC for all its faults as a um, shared source of information that is largely trusted and largely reliable. And if you compare us to countries around the world that don't have a similar common ground, then actually we are in a much stronger position as a result. But one of the th- things about that question is that the four is in some ways an applied experiment in can you in this day and age begin to create a new trusted institution that can earn the trust of the general public over time. And that hasn't really been done in quite a long time, not in the sense since the Institute for Fiscal Studies got going 50 years ago, but they got going in a completely different age where you only needed to talk to about 2,000 people. We've got going in a raucous, much more democratic, much more horizontal world, and earning trust and building a reputation will take a long time. But if we can demonstrate that can be done by us, then it offers hope, I think, that that can be done on a wider basis. And I'd like to see more expert institutions doing that because politicians aren't going to be able to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. There needs to be external validation from people people trust. And that's why I think the most interesting part of the EU referendum was that when people were asked who would you trust on the EU referendum, Mm. what they said was Martin Lewis, the money (laughs) safety expert. (laughs) Recognizable, authoritative, clearly on your side. Mm. And how many people can you say that about? Now the fact that Martin Lewis was not an expert in Brexit in any way, shape or form, (laughs) turned out to be irrelevant because who was there who was any better that anyone knew? And so Mm. Martin Lewis became the person people wanted to hear from we need to offer people better options than that with great respect to Martin Lewis.
1: I'll comment very quickly on these questions. Personalisation, you have to... I, I'm slightly sceptical, to be, to be blunt. I don't need the BBC to tell me my salary. I've actually, I just get that in my, my, my paycheck every month. What I want to know is, is what the national picture is. And so a lot of news is really about giving people the national picture against which they can compare their own experience now it's true that if there are big divergences in the national picture then that's obviously that's part of the story but i i would use i'm actually slightly skeptical even about data what the national what you should be reporting is not the data about you know what's going on in my area it's, it's what you want is the kind of the story or the big the, it's, it's the big sort of. It's, I don't. Story is the wrong word because story is used in a different way. But it, but it's the, it's the narrative or it's the the hypothesis or the the, the two sentence description of what is happening, which is employment is very high, jobs are insecure, and wages have been kept down. But the insecure low wage jobs right. have have helped employment stay very high. Right. Now that, that is a kind of that is an interpretation of what's happened in the labour market. It's relevant to quite a lot of people, and it's you don't have to say well the data's four percent or this it's just it's a sort of it's about trying to find the unit of public analysis is not a fact or a piece of data it's a sort of it's the thing like the one I've just given you it's a sort of three sentence description of a state of affairs that is helpful. Can I just yeah, go on. Push I, I you on do, that slightly. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Because it is true that the average wage has basically been flat for the last yeah, 10 years. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, the person who was earning the average wage mm. 10 years ago is almost certainly not earning the average wage now. And so this data that tells us that average wages are flat is not necessarily a good guide to what has happened to the typical person. And that's something that okay, has but got but absolutely mm. lost in this argument, yeah, specifically yeah, yeah. because we are dealing with average mm. data. And I mean, it's it's something that no, uh, one of my a, that's trustees that's a fair think. point. That's
1: a fair point. Yeah. No, that, that is a fair point. But whether that gets you towards personalization or whether that just gets you to better reporting of the of, of, of the kind of national picture, is, is a good point. Uh, the equilibrium point. I think Will, Will Will's answered it, but but you summarised our discussion so brilliantly with the four mm. the four mm. different mm. approaches. I, 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 I was taking notes <laughs> and um, we'll use it elsewhere. But the, <laughs> but the equilibrium one we'll take is time. it is very difficult to get out of mm. that without lobbying in some kind of truth anchors mm. that people can sort of grab onto um, that just... That, that 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 help them. And and so the full facts or the, the mm. BBCs or people like that are fantastically helpful.
0: So does it have to be external? Inst- I mean, we have this thing where we all hate quangos well, until we create them, like the OBR to hold us to account and stuff like that. Just wonder... Is, if you're you know, people in working government, civil servants, and stuff like that, you know, do they actually just have to create you know, hope for people like full fact and uh, whatever to hold them to behave better, or is there actually anything government itself well, we can could, start to do impose. differently to <coughs> really create we, we, trust?
1: We could we could we could impose a code on the civil service or the public servants about their behaviour. We have, and we and just don't enforce it. And, and we could enforce it, and we could enforce <laughs> it more rigorously. And that would be, you know, that would be would be something. The other thing you can do, which is the sort of paradoxical thing, which is we sort of do with special advisers, you might actually, basically, if you can... You licence people to lie <laughs> in certain circumstances, um, and that... That gives you the contrast with the other circumstances where they're not allowed to lie. So you might say, we have these people, let's call them special advisors, they're allowed to lie. These other ones who are not special advisors, they're not allowed to lie. They have to be very different to those ones. By allow, by literally, by licensing the, 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 the special mm. advisors to say whatever they want, everybody knows the difference and then immediately kind of clings to the other side. So I think you can mm. you can almost... And, and the politicians get someone out there who can sort of give the the, the thing they want you to believe. I sort of, mm. yeah, I think it's, I think you can do it with codes and a little bit mm. of that. But you then need somebody who is trusted to oh, enforce the code. And if it's if you don't trust the enforcer, then you'll you'll appoint another enforcer to enforce the enforcer's enforcement of the code, and that you're in. The-
0: okay, we're coming towards the end, so let's just do a very quick fi- final round. Oh, we're going to have four questions. So let's do there and then there.
1: Uh, Hi, uh, my
5: name is Matthew Mulligan um, from Storyful News, and we actually had uh, one of Will's um, uh, members of Full Fact in our newsroom with us during the election. Uh, Just kind of talking about the fake news in a very practical sense, I'm interested in what you think about uh, what the hallmarks of the fake news in the British general election were just gone, uh, where you see that going in the next general election, whenever that is, uh, and what newsrooms have to do to be ready for that.
0: Okay, so how do we prepare for fake news and yes there?
8: Hi. Um, um, so it was just a bit of a follow-on and sort of a double challenge to um, Evan, because I do think this point about disaggregating data and making it very relevant um, and useful for people at a hyperlocal level um, is really important. I think this is sort of playing out in Grenfell. So I just wanted to come back to your point about open-mindedness and things that we can start to do tomorrow, because um, I think the other, the other side, the citizen side of things, is a lifelong learning process. But with an economist on the panel and people who deal with evidence and data... What is the um, appetite to be, more, um, to be more democratic in the way that um, evidence and data is communicated? So are experts taking this stuff on board and thinking about what the implications are for their current skill sets and what they need to be doing differently? It's a very interesting question about whose evidence is it and what evidence mm-hmm. do we count? Mm-hmm. Let's come
0: forward here. So...
8: Um. So we haven't spoken very much about the association of socially powerful groups with brands that represent truth and how toxic that can be. Um, Evan, you spoke earlier about the coffee example and trusting that a jury had made that decision. Now, I too would trust a jury in a sense more than a judge and be less likely to call foul. Um, Do we have a problem that the BBC and others are seen as judges and um, too powerful for their own good? And
0: can you tell us who you were? Oh, sorry. I'm Polly
8: Ashmore. Um, I work at NHS England. All right. Okay.
0: Forgot to ask the lady there. Okay. Final question just here.
3: Hi. Thank you. Winnie um, Agbonlahore, freelance journalist. Uh, My question is really, has anything really changed, whether we call it uh, post-truth, fake news, or alternative facts? I mean, people have always been bullshitting and probably always will be. And um, as far as I can see, a story has always been more newsworthy, the more stereotypes it reinforces and i don't i don't see that changing um and and then we've got this whole other element in the uk and i believe in in the u.s as well which is a national culture of bullshitting (laughs) where (laughs) because we say a lot of things around here that are that just aren't true but that's just accepted and also we've got the very antagonistic house of commons which is in stark contrast to, for example, the Bundestag, which is round, and where the wildest element of a discussion might be someone clapping for too long. <laughs> so I just wonder, will anything really ever change?
0: Okay, so it should we become as boring as the Bundestag. <laughs> so we have one person who's desperate to get in.
7: Thanks, Jill. It's just that uh, I'm Louise Shackson from the OC Development Institute. Um, it's just a plea to get out of London. I think all of this, um, I think this is a very London-centric audience. I live in North Dorset. I think the debate that we would be having in North Dorset would be very different from the one we're we're having here. And I think strengthening regional news, um, not having the... Strengthening regional news in the BBC, strengthening regional newspapers is also very important for the trust issue.
0: Okay. That actually gets you... That sort of connects
1: with the kind Mm -hmm. of... The the, the powerful who are the, the people who are giving you the news are a particular social or... Geographical class who, who, and that does contribute to to a lack of trust. Now, I mean, the only thing I would say is is that I, uh, and and my answer to the first question as well, which was about um, democratic, or or the second question, can we make the way data is communicated more democratic and more kind of open? The, The answer to all three of those questions is pluralism. I really don't want anybody to have a monopoly. Because as soon as somebody has a monopoly, a they won't do the job very well, and b people will have, find reason not to believe them anyway, and so it's terribly important that there is a sort of that economics is a pluralistic subject, that the media is not dominated by three rich families or billionaires. Um, it, it's interesting you included the, the BBC in your group of the sort of the BBC is 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 not. The BBC, is, it's hard to categorise in that, in that group, by the way. I don't, I don't know what it is. Um, and, and I think it's the same with the, the, the sort of geographical point. I want there to be strong regional titles and strong regional reporting. And all of these things will feed off each other, but as soon as you move to a model, which I, and this has been tempting to some of my more sort of liberal remainery friends, which is... The People have been fooled. They've been hoodwinked by powerful people. And what we need is a kind of an Uber BBC that puts them right and corrects public debate, which is actually deep down what a lot of people believe. They wouldn't put it like that. That that we need to enforce truth on the people because they don't get it. Brexit's bad and uh, they don't get it and they need to be told. And it's not going to work. You know, you have to rely on there being a discourse... Truth is a sort of process of discovery and we we are more likely to make a fruitful journey towards a truthful discovery in that process um, by by having a sort of a lively discourse with with, with more than one person trying to make the decisions. So I I agree with you on on, on the powerful. I don't think you want it all to be in the hands of billionaires or all in the hands of the BBC. I don't want it all to be in London and that's the way I democratise it. That's the way I... Um, is that it's it, it's always going to be an elite who are right. managing the information mm-hmm. flow, but I don't want there to be one elite. I want the elite to be a competing network of of rivals and 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 and, and uh, you, you know competitors, and that that is your protection, um, and and. That that's the only answer I can give to all of those questions.
0: Yeah. Just to Just pick on up the on that point. Yeah.
2: I was um, at uh, at the International Fact Checking Network Conference last <laughs> week. Um, In Madrid. which was great. And the boss of <laughs> the boss of Wikimedia is really fun mice. Um, the boss of Wikimedia, which runs Wikipedia, um, gave a wonderful keynote speech and one of her arguments was inclusion is necessary for fairness. And I think that was an argument really well made, and it's an argument on which um, a lot of our public institutions, including the media, mm-hmm. fall short. Is something that Full Fact has been giving a lot of thought to as well. So I think that's an absolutely well-founded point. I wanted to pick up on the very helpful question from Storyful, uh, one of the newsroom mm-hmm. partners for the First Draft Full Fact project. and Thank you very mm-hmm. much, by the way. Um, what misinformation will we see at the next election, and what should newsrooms do about it? Um, One is much more from the political parties Mm -hmm. because they will actually have their acting gear this time. Expect organised bullshit, not just (laughs) democratic (laughs) bullshit. Um, One is really hard to spot. Actually tracking what is going on online is hard and what is spreading and what is important Mm -hmm. is hard and I think that's one of the things this project which... Every day emailed a whole set of newsrooms, including BBC, Storyful, and things like the International Business Times, a whole range, saying this is what's going on online, this is what matters, and it's not where you think it is, and it's not who you think it is. Um, I think tracking that stuff is going to be increasingly important in future. And My third point about it is it will, um, I think, once again, see hyper-partisan activists driving a lot of that um, messaging.
0: On and both just on, sides. on the final thing, are we all panicking unnecessarily? Because actually this has always been with us, it's not oh, yeah. any worse and than good point.
1: Well, I think, I think there's some truth in that. I think it is, I think there is a bit more, people are believing a bit more than they, perhaps they would at other times, believing stuff that suits them. So I'm, your timelines, people are just liking stuff all the time that's thrown at them. And they get a lovely, warm sense of togetherness, because they're liking things that their, their mm-hmm. friends have posted and I mean sort of interpretations of the news and the way it's going. The, you know, Boris Johnson went to a Sikh temple and he screwed up completely by talking about whiskey sales. You know, what an idiot. Like, you know, <laughs> like another like. Yes, we're all, because we're all so clever. And I think, I think that is, that's the sort of classic. It, it's not fake news, he did go to the thing. It's, it's about the interpretation and the very close-minded interpretation that people are trying to put on everything um, and it's, it, it's, it's in some ways it's it, that is a little different to, to where it used to be so I think that's where it's that's where it's different I but think it's rough r- bullshit's been with us always will be
2: sorry um, I exactly I mean of course you know political lying. you know you read Machiavelli two, <laughs> like this is not new I think three things at least yeah. are new one is the decline in deference to authority yeah. over the last 50, 60 years, very amply documented in the surveys. Now if you look at the Ipsos Mori Generations work and mm-hmm. stuff like that, this generation has a different attitude to authority than um, the previous or the one before. Um, the second is access to public platforms is much, much wider now, which is a great thing, but it changes the way information spreads. Mm-hmm. And the third is the speed at which information spreads. Mm-hmm. So all of those are important changes, but absolutely your fundamental point Bullshit was not invented yesterday or even last century. Not even by Donald it's Trump. Absolutely. <laughs> Although he'd probably claim
3: it was his. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Sad. Anyway. Okay, excellent. That's a great point to end. Uh, there are drinks outside. Uh, there are copies of Evan's book outside. If you want to do and it, everyone will and sign it. We'll I just say, because I haven't said it.
2: it, it's a bloody good book. It's a good no. book. Yeah. Honestly, it's worth yeah. a shot. Yeah,
0: so worth a shot. Available here and at other outlets or whatever. Nine ninety nine, though crucially not nine eighty eight, where it would have sold less. <laughs> which I think was the fact in Evans' book that I found most intriguing: that people would buy more at nine ninety nine than at ten pounds. They buy less if you try to charge nine eighty eight, which doesn't go down at all well. Uh, so never charge that. Um, the drinks outside, you don't have to pay for them. Whatever the price is, uh, do buy Evans' books, but. Finally, could I ask you to thank our excellent speakers tonight, Evan <clears> throat> throat> throat>